Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. And it means so much that you're here today worshiping with us. I am pumped for today. I'm gonna ask you if you would, let's go ahead and let's stand to our feet as we get ready to read from God's word today. What I want us to do, we're gonna be reading from Luke chapter 23 and 24. The words are gonna pick up on the screen once we hit chapter uh, 24. This is uh, right after Jesus's crucifixion. It says this, starting in verse 50. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus's body. Then he took the body down from the cross. He wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth, and he laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As Jesus' body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. And as we're getting ready to hop into verse 24, I, I love the word that kicks off this very next set of verses, because what we've just read, Jesus is dead. His lifeless body is laid in the tomb, and then verse, tw- verse one of Luke 24 says this, but, <laughs> but, yeah, Jesus was dead. Yeah, he, he, it seemed like the story was over, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified. They bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He is not here. He has risen from the dead. Church, that's what we celebrate today. Jesus' victory over sin, over death itself, and the victory that he offers to every single person who calls on his name. The tomb is empty, amen? The tomb is empty, but I I believe this is gonna happen as we study God's word today, as we hop in and we see what God is gonna say to us, what what I think we're gonna see happen, what I think we're gonna notice is that God's gonna tell us something. God's gonna say, yes, the tomb is empty, but I don't want it to stay that way. The tomb is empty, but I don't want to stay that way. I want you to place something in the tomb of Jesus and leave it there. You see, the women, whenever they came to the tomb early on that Sunday morning in Luke 24, 1, we see that they came with something. They came with the the spices that they prepared to anoint Jesus's body. They brought something to the tomb that they left at the tomb. And I believe a lot of us have come in here today, a lot of us have joined online today, and we have brought something into this worship service with us, and God is gonna be telling you today, it's time to lay that down. It's time to let that go. It's time to leave that, not just your sin, not just your shame, not just your guilt, but that other thing. I want you to leave that in the tomb of Jesus and to walk with confidence in the new life that he offers. 
Let's bow our heads and let's pray together real quick. Father God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for what it means for us that every single person who calls on your name, that in that instant, the old is gone and the new is here. That that old life, the old way of thinking, we are not slave to it anymore. We have been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. God, thank you for your word. Help us as we begin to study in these next moments that our eyes would be open, that we would see it with a fresh perspective, with new insight, and that as we leave today, we would leave changed people, transformed people, resurrection people, because we encountered you and we encountered the truth of your word. We lift all of this up, Father, in your mighty and your powerful name. And everybody said together, amen, amen. Why don't you grab a seat, high five somebody next to you, tell them it's about to get spicy. It's about to get spicy. <laughs> Why is it about to get spicy, right? Like, what's, what's about to happen up in here? Uh, <laughs> so our sermon title for today, if you're a note taker, you got a little sermon notebook. If you're a note taker, our title for today is No More Myrrh. Can you say that with me? No More Myrrh. Try to say that five times fast. That's a tongue twister. Uh, but myrrh, myrrh, that's this spice it's this fragrance that I want us to focus in on uh, today. Whenever Pastor Brenda last night before our six o'clock service, she leaned over to me and said, hey, uh, I'm excited to hear you preach tonight. What are you preaching on? Like jokingly, because it's Easter. There's only so many things you can preach on, right? Um, but I told her, I said, well, actually, I'm trying to take a little bit of a different direction with it. I'm gonna be talking about a spice. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about myrrh. Uh, and so I want you to walk with me as we kind of work through this and see how this applies to us today and where we're at. So myrrh, um, it's, it's this thing that we read about in scripture. It's a spice. It's a fragrance. And it pops up over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now myrrh, what the word literally means, it literally means bitter. That's what the word myrrh means, it means bitter. And so uh, it's the spice, it's, it's this fragrance. And one thing that's very interesting is how often it pops up in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because we see it all over the pages, like I said, of the Old Testament, and then we see it a ton in the life of Jesus as well. Let me just read a few little instances where we see this pop up. This is from Matthew chapter two, just verse 11. This is when uh, the Magi are coming, they're visiting Jesus after his birth. This is what it says, verse 11. They entered the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How many people had a Christmas verse on their bingo card for Easter today that we were gonna be diving into the Christmas story? So that's in Matthew 2. We see myrrh make an appearance. And then again, in Matthew 26, this is later in Jesus' life. He's a man now. He's started his ministry. This is Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar, an expensive perfume, and poured it over his head. This is a story that we talked about. If you came to our Stations of the Cross uh, for Good Friday, that's what this is. This station that we had is recounting this story where this woman comes to Jesus, pours out this expensive perfume. In one instance, the, uh, the perfume is called nard, which really need a better name for a perfume than that, like Nard by Calvin Klein. It just doesn't sound appealing. 
but she comes in with that. But what we know is that myrrh was one of the main ingredients in any perfume because of its fragrance. And so uh, she comes in, she pours this on Jesus's feet while he's at this house, uh, and his disciples are upset, right? They pour it on the feet while he's reclining at the table. Then the disciples saw this. They were indignant. They were mad. Why this waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. Remember that statement. Skipping ahead, this is to the next gospel, Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark. This is Mark chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. This is Jesus is getting ready to head to the cross, and this is what we see. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused. Not, uh, not the next gospel, not the gospel of Luke, but then in the gospel of John, John chapter 19. This is after Jesus' uh, death on the cross. It says this in verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Once again, myrrh. <laughs> it pops up over and over and over again all throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's funny, I actually have a, a little bit of myrrh. I, I have this little anointing oil thing that I keep with me, like in my backpack. I keep it in my bag at like all times. And sure enough, it's made from myrrh, which is just like such a, this is such a tell me you're a pastor without telling me you're a pastor moment. Like this has happened numerous times where I reach into my bag to grab my like Burt's Bees lip balm and I'm like, oh, accidentally pulled out my anointing oil as one normally carries with them, right? Like just carrying this around, people might freak a little bit of people out. Like, are you about to do an exorcism? What's happening in here? Um, but it's this fragrance. It's this, this fragrance, this spice, and it's used all over the place. It's used as a perfume. It's used uh, in anointing oil. It's used for medicinal purposes. But the biggest use that we see of myrrh in scripture the biggest use of what we know myrrh was used for in these times and in this area, uh, the biggest use is for burial, for death. Myrrh is synonymous with death. Myrrh is synonymous with preparing for the worst. Think about that. It says that the, uh, the woman poured uh, the, the fragrance on Jesus' feet and he says, she has done this to prepare me for my burial. It says that the women prepared the spices to come and prepare Jesus' body for his burial, for his decomposition. So when we hear myrrh, what we instantly think of is death, bitter, the worst, things not turning out the way that you hoped that they would, things not going the way that you had prayed that they would. It points to and it prepares for death and it's exactly what the women brought with them that morning to Jesus's tomb. But what I love that we read right there in Luke 24, verse one, is that yes, they, they came to Jesus's tomb with the myrrh. They came to Jesus's tomb with the fragrances and the ointments and the aloes to prepare Jesus's body for the worst, to prepare his body for the worst. But guess what? The myrrh went unused. <laughs> it went unused. There was no need to use what they had prepared for because the situation on the ground had changed. Yeah. 
Have you ever had that moment whenever you're getting ready to like leave out of the house and you've been rushed and like if you're like me, I'm a breakfast person. I didn't used to be, but I love having breakfast now. And so I, I, I like have those mornings where I'm rushing out of the house and I don't get to actually make a good breakfast. And so I'm grabbing like that one banana that's left. And you know what that banana looks like. It's the sad banana. It looks messed up. Like someone should have put that banana out of its misery like two days ago, but it's still there. And you're like, oh, right, I guess I'll grab it. And you take it. That's what you've prepared now. That's what you've prepared as your breakfast and you go into work and to the glory of God, someone has brought in Panera Bread bagels, right? And you're like, oh, and there's the cinnamon crunch ones. You know which ones I'm talking about, the cinnamon crunch? And they've got extra cinnamon crunch on them and you're like, oh, Jesus is alive, he is good, God is good, right? And so what do you do with that thing that you prepared? That banana, you punt that thing out the room. You're like, I do not need you anymore, right? You, you don't need it anymore. What you've prepared, you're not gonna use it anymore because the situation has changed. There's a new reality that has now changed what you had prepared for. You see, the women had prepared for the worst, but when they come to the tomb, they see reality has changed. <laughs> there's, there's a new situation on the ground now. Jesus is alive, Jesus has risen from the dead, and this thing that I've brought, this preparation for the worst, I can toss it aside because I don't need it anymore. And what I want us to do as we continue the sermon today is I want us to take myrrh and what it symbolizes, preparation for death, preparation for the worst, which Jesus himself said, this, this, this thing that she's doing to me, this is preparing my body for burial. What I want us to do is take that, take this, this thing, this spice, myrrh, and I want us to use it as kind of a, an analogy for our own cynicism, for our own pessimism, and for the ways that we constantly prepare for the worst and worry about the worst and fear about the worst. And what I believe God's gonna ask us today is this question, will you leave not just your sin? Because we, we know that, we, we talk about that. We talk about that here a lot at Cornerstone. We just did this on Friday, the Stations of the Cross. We signed our names, we nailed our sins figuratively to the cross, leaving them there, left our sins at the empty tomb of Jesus. But I think what God is asking us today is will you leave not just your sin in the empty tomb of Jesus, will you leave your cynicism in the empty tomb of Jesus? Will you leave your pessimism in the empty tomb of Jesus? Will you leave your negativity and your snarkiness and your belief that things are just never gonna work out for you? Like we heard Lauren sharing about, that it just felt like it was never gonna happen for her, that this is something that happened for other people but not for her. Are you willing to take that and to leave that in the empty tomb of Jesus too. Because church, this is what I wanna tell you about, and I know it sounds funny. It's probably not what you were expecting today. Easter Sunday, and we're talking about pessimism and cynicism, but let me tell you, the reason I want us to focus in on this is because what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus, is so good, it's so wonderful, it's so powerful, and it's so life-changing, we have no reason to be cynical. We just have no reason, no excuse as a church, as a body of believers to have cynicism or pessimism anywhere in our life. Jesus is too good for it. He's just too good. He's too wonderful. It, it makes me think this past week, we uh, took our kids to go see the Super Mario Brothers movie. Really funny, by the way. It was a really funny movie. So we took our kids to see it. We were, get, we like, we were more geeked out than they were to like tell them, right? Like me and Jessica are like, so how are we gonna do this? Let's tell them whatever. They get home from school, we'll tell them and we'll make it a big announcement. And so we did. We waited and they got home from school and we're like, hey kids, guess what we're doing tonight? They're like, what, what? We're like, we're taking you on opening night to see the Super Mario Brothers movie. And they're like, oh, and they, they can't believe it. And we're like, wait, wait, it's, it gets better, it gets better. I know it's a school night, you have school tomorrow. 
we're taking you to a late showing. We, we're just taking you to a late showing anyways. And they're like, <gasps> they're gasping even deeper now. Like their face is starting to turn red. They're like, <gasps> like they can't believe it. And we're like, hold on, that's not it, that's not it. We got you little toys too. And we got them like little plushies. Like we got Evelyn, this little Squishmallow. We got Griffin, this little Lego guy. And we got uh, Eden, a Princess Peach, because that's her favorite character. We got those four. We're like, we've got these for you too. They're, <gasps> they're, they're like, their minds are exploding all across the room at this moment. And then we're like, and it's not even just that. It's, it's even better than that. We got you snacks too. And we're gonna duct tape them to you and have you illegally smuggle them in to the movie theater. <laughs> Be our little snack mules to get you in there. Like, yeah, no, we don't have anything with us. And they're losing it. Like, they're like, yes, you got our favorites. Like, they're, they're just amped, right? So we get to the theater and we packed all their blankets. Like, we did it up. Like, we packed their blankets and they've got their little toys with them. We cover them up and they're in the reclining chairs. And it's just, I mean, it's perfect. It's perfect. They all pay really good attention during the movie, even Griffin, like he, and he's our youngest. They're paying good attention. We're like, this is a perfect night. Like numerous times during the movie, me and Jessica look over at each other and we're like, I love you. Isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? Like, this is awesome. So then we go home after the movie's over and it's like, it's well past 11 at this point. What we're assuming in our ignorance and stupidity as parents is we're assuming we're gonna go home, we're gonna open up the door and we're gonna say, hey kids, it's past 11, it's time for bed. And they're gonna go, okay, that's fine. You've given us such a wonderful night, mother and father. Thank you, thank you. And then skip up the stairs to bed. That's what we thought was gonna happen. That is not what happened. We get home and you know we set our stuff down and no sooner than we set our stuff down and all the lights are off. We're just prepping for it to be just chill. Set everything down, getting ready to turn on, be like, hey, all right, everybody, let's go upstairs, let's brush our teeth, let's get in bed. As we set things down, a light starts to illuminate the room, and I turn around, and it's from the fridge. Eden had just walked over and was like, boom, popping up the fridge, like, you did do, what am I gonna eat? What am I gonna eat? And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> it's, it's late, like, what, what's going on? We, we need to go to bed. And she's like, bed? I haven't had a bedtime snack yet. I'm like, a, be- a what now? <laughs> like, a bedtime snack? I'm like, you just killed a bucket of popcorn and some nerd gummy clusters at the theater that was your bedtime snack. Like, it's, it's bedtime now. And I'll give my, my girl credit. It's late, so she's emotional. She starts, but I'm, you know, I'm just really hungry. I'm actually hungry for real food. And her real food is like Cocoa Krispies. I'm like, oh, yeah, real food, right? That and some chips. And I'm like, no, you, you got to go to bed. And, and, and I'm, I'm starting to, like, in my head, I'm getting frustrated because I'm like, what in the world? All of this wonderful stuff we just did, all these great, amazing things we do, and as soon as we get home, cynical and pessimistic, and oh, we just don't get to do anything. We don't get to eat. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, what is going on here? And the crazy thing is how cynicism is contagious, right? And pessimism, it's contagious. It starts to spread, and it infiltrates the other kids. The other kids were fine, but then Evelyn hears it, and she's like, yeah, I want a bedtime snack, too. I'm hungry, too. And then Griffin's over there, just, He's crying and screaming. And this night that had been so awesome, that had been so wonderful, it starts to torpedo because of of cynical mindsets and pessimistic mindsets. I'm going, what in the world is happening? And we see this happen with cynicism. Man, it infects families. It infects organizations. It infects churches. It is contagious. It is deadly. That's why we're talking about it today. It's, It's that big of a deal. We, man, we see it all over the place. The city of Akron, they uh, just announced that they're getting ready to do a big redesign and renovation of the Lock 3 Park downtown. And it looks really good. Like I saw it online, I'm like, that looks cool. That's awesome. They're trying to you know, do more stuff down there. I'm like, that's great. 
you open up the comment section. Whoo, man, people just lighten them up. Just, oh, this is gonna be terrible. This is gonna be stupid. We all know how this is gonna turn out. They, they, yeah, why don't you fix the potholes? Why don't you give me that money? Why don't you, you know, every negative comment you can possibly imagine just, and it's like each person's trying to out-negative the next. Like, oh yeah, well this, oh yeah, well this, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, and you're going, what in the world? The cynical nature, the pessimistic nature, the just, oh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's so funny, we see that happening all over, and we see it a lot in our area. I remember hearing a sports reporter uh, uh, for Cleveland, Tony Grossi, talking about this years ago. It was after the Cavs won the championship in 2016. And he said, I know this is gonna sound funny. I know people are probably gonna criticize this statement. He said, but I'm telling you, one of the best economic incentives, one of the best economic boosts a city can have is winning a professional sports championship. More than passing a piece of legislation, more than just about anything else, it does something to the psyche and to the self-confidence of a city to win. And he said, if you don't believe me, he says, just go and look back. He says, think about Cleveland for a second. Is Cleveland really, like geographically speaking, the kind of weather we get, all this different stuff, how are we different from Chicago or Boston or Philadelphia? Are we? No, like we're not. How often do you hear Philadelphia, Boston, or Chicago like rip on their weather? Oh, our weather, come to our town. Our town's the worst. We hate it here. Ugh. You just don't. But you heard it in Cleveland all the time. You hear it in our area all the time, even though it's the exact same. And he says it's, it's incredible when you look at the tra trajectory of Cleveland sports, the moment that they started to go from being really good, because they used to be really good, and then around the 50s and 60s, that was the heyday, and then it just started to nosedive in, in crazy fashion, too. Like, it was just, it was wild how they would lose games, and, and it got to a point where in the games, you're just waiting for the other shoe to fall. You're just waiting for the bottom to fall out. You're just waiting for something bad to happen. And so you get this cynical nature where they can do something good in the off season. And, yeah, don't worry, they'll botch it. Don't worry, they'll screw it up. They'll find a way to make a mess out of it. Don't worry, they'll find a way. In that mindset, because cynicism is contagious, it spreads. It's not just in sports. You see it affect every area of the region. So whenever the region does stuff to, to better the area or to try to do something, what do people say? <laughs> good luck with that. Oh, we know you'll botch it. We know you'll mess it up. Because cynicism is contagious. It spreads, it infects, and it turns us into people that we were never supposed to be. And my goodness, is it easy to be cynical in today's culture. We live in such cynical times, it's unbelievable. And here's the thing, I can't speak to it from a broader cultural perspective, but for us, for people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, for people in the church, can I tell you, Pessimism and cynicism have no place, have no business on this side of the resurrection. After the resurrection of Jesus, after he rose from death in power, cynicism and pessimism have no place in our lives from that point forward. Think about it this way, I, again, from Luke 24, verse one. Let me read it one more time. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, the spices, the, the myrrh, the aloe, the ointments, do you know this, this account, what we read in the Gospels, this account of the, uh, the women coming and bringing myrrh and bringing the ointments and the aloes to Jesus's tomb to prepare his body for uh, his burial. Do you know this is the last mention we have of myrrh in scripture? Up until this point, it's all over the place. We see it in tons of places in the Old Testament. We see it all throughout Jesus' ministry. But from here on, nothing, nothing. 
it's gone. <laughs> because myrrh, preparing for death, preparing for the worst, preparing for your hopes to be shattered, preparing for disappointment, preparing for letdowns, has no business this side of Jesus' resurrection. It has no business in our lives. We can't be held down by this negative nature anymore. Pessimism has no place this side of the resurrection. So what that means is no more myrrh. No more. No more just expecting and waiting for the worst to happen. Jesus' own disciples, think about it. After he was crucified, after he was killed, imagine the pessimism and the cynicism they must have had. Imagine how scared they must have been and worried about the future. You want to talk about being cynical and pessimistic about the future. These guys are looking at, okay, they're calling Jesus a revolutionary who tried to overthrow the, the Jewish way of doing things and the Roman way of doing things. They're coming for us. There's no way they're not coming for us. They had to be scared for their lives. But the resurrection happens. And suddenly, these guys who were scared for their lives, who were, who were in hiding, suddenly are in the very streets that Jesus' cross scraped as he was carrying to Golgotha. They're in those streets proclaiming he's back from the dead. That's what resurrection power looks like. There's no room for pessimism. It's only optimism. It's only, man, we're, we're advancing. Like, we are going into the future confident in Jesus because of what he's done and because of what he has achieved. Jesus absolutely infused his disciples with confidence and hope. And when I read that in scripture, I can't help but read this and I see what these men and women did and I go, if he infused them with confidence and hope, why not us? Like, why in the world do we as a church, do we as believers all across the world, why do we settle for a second class faith? Acting as if, oh no, th these were the ones who really had access to God. But in our day, it's, it's never gonna be the same. No, we don't have to settle for second class anything. The very same statement, think about this, the very same statement that shot the disciples with life, that, that gave them the confidence and the hope, the statement that he is not here, Luke 24, 6, he is not here, he has risen from the dead. That same statement that infused them with confidence can infuse us with that same confidence. It can infuse us with that same hope, with that same optimism for the future. And their disciples, I, I look at what happened to them, and man, they were, to call them persecuted, it, it's, it's laughable what we think is persecution to us today when you look at what happened to them. You wanna talk about persecution. These people were beaten. They were tortured. They were killed. They were persecuted. And what's so wild to me is that in the midst of this persecution, they're being fed to animals. They're being burned alive. In the midst of this, faith grew it spread like wildfire. The, the Roman government couldn't contain it. It took over in the midst of the persecution. You wanna know why? Because the disciples and the followers of Jesus, the men and women who advanced the gospel, the reason they advanced the gospel is because they said, yeah, uh, no more myrrh. <laughs> we are not waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're not waiting for the bottom to fall out. We're not believing the worst is gonna happen. We are believing the best is gonna happen because our God has conquered sin and death and we are confidently following him into the future. And no, we won't allow any situation, any circumstance, any obstacle to get in our way. Jesus infused his disciples with confidence and hope and it shouldn't be any different for us now. At Cornerstone, what I love about us as a church is I feel like we get this. We don't get it perfect, right? But I feel like we get this. We, we understand, you know what? We can have confidence and hope about the future. We don't have to be pessimistic. Why else 
would we buy a building and start a building campaign in the middle of a worldwide pandemic? Like, think about that. Church consultants were talking about the pandemic and saying, you know what? This has changed church forever. People who stop coming, you may never see some of them again. Like, they're just, they won't be back. In fact, uh, digital church might replace in-person church. Like, it's just a brand new day. And so in the midst of all that, we hear that. We're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're gonna buy a building. Uh, we're gonna buy a building, even though everyone's saying, saying digital. And not only are we gonna buy a building, we're buying a building that people can't even come into yet. <laughs> like, we can't even have anything here yet. Like, we can't even do anything in this building yet. But we as a church believed, you know what? No, no more myrrh. We're not waiting for the bottom to fall out. We're not believing and preparing for the worst. We're believing God for the best. And so we're gonna act as if, we're gonna act as if he's gonna come through. And it can sound, whenever you hear that, it can sound like, wow, that's just, that's kind of dumb faith, isn't it? It's kind of blind faith. Like, what strategy is there? Like, is there any strategy at all? Because it doesn't sound like it. And what I'm advocating today is not blind faith. Blind faith is not what Jesus' disciples had. Blind faith is not what Cornerstone Church has. I'm not advocating for blind faith. I'm, I'm advocating for a confident hope. A confident hope. And this is what our confident hope is tethered in. Not in sending up a Hail Mary and hoping something happens. Our confident hope as a church, our confident hope as believers for the last 2,000 years has been this. I can believe the best about the future because God has been faithful then. And if I can look into my past, if I can look into my history, if I can look at my own story and see time after time after time after time where God has been faithful, if he was faithful then, he's gonna be faithful now. And if he was faithful then, he's gonna be faithful there. Like, I, I can build my life on that fact. I can build my hope and my future on that fact. And that's what we bet on as a church, is that we look at our own story, our own history, and we go, we shouldn't be here. <laughs> like, there's no reason we should exist, and not just be existing, growing. Look around, church. Like, we're, we are growing. This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. But we live on this side of the resurrection. <laughs> but we follow a God who has power and strength and he is infusing us with it. And so no, we don't have a second class Christianity. We have a Christianity that says we will take bold, audacious steps of faith, believing God for the best in our future. That's what he has in mind for us. That's what he wants from his church. He wants positivity. <laughs> he wants us to be positive about life. He wants us to be optimistic about life. He wants us to be the ray of hope in the situations that we find ourselves because my God is this a dark world. I, this is a cynical world. This is a world that is so pessimistic and we are to be light bearers running into the world, spreading the optimism and the joy of the cross every single place that we go. I love this. This is uh, from Luke chapter uh, 24 where we've been reading. This next, this next little question uh, is so good. It's what the angels ask the women as they come to the tomb. It says that the angels uh, uh, say to her, as the, the women are terrified, they bow their faces around, it says that the men, the angels ask, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? I love that question. <laughs> I love that question. And I feel like God's asking that question to us today, and he's asking it to us as believers today, saying, look, if you are alive in Christ, why are you holding on to a dead mindset? If you are alive in Christ, if my son has infused you with his resurrection power, why are you holding on to mindsets that they belong in the tomb? That's what needs to go in there. The, the myrrh, all, all that preparation for the worst, believing the worst is gonna happen, waiting for the bottom to fall out, that belongs in the tomb. 
If you are alive in Christ, why are you holding on to dead mindsets? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? My, my uh, youngest, Griffin, my little guy, he, he's three years old and he's, he's in a weird spot right now where he is, we're trying, to, we're, we're trying our best, trying being the key word, we're trying our best to get him potty trained. It's an, interest, it's an interesting road to travel. We're, we're at that place right now where whenever he's you know, going in his diaper, as we're cleaning him, we're like, bro, the amount of stuff in this diaper, th- this belongs in the toilet. Like this is too much. This is too much for a diaper. The diaper days have to come to an end. Like, we, we gotta get you out of this. But the hard thing is, he, he doesn't want to use the toilet and he doesn't like to be changed. Awesome, that's a great combination, right? He doesn't like either of those things. So the other day, he goes in his diaper and he you know, hates being changed. So Jessica's like, oh man, you stink, I gotta change you. And a chase ensues. Griffin takes off and he's running around the house and he's cackling, laughing the whole time, just running around the house. Jessica's chasing him. It's a stinky little chase around our house. She eventually gets him, puts him on the ground and is trying to change him. And man, he's strong and he's laughing and he's kicking and trying to squirm out of it. And she can't change him. So she eventually just kind of stops. She's like, Griffin, buddy, look, if you would just use the toilet, if you would just try to sit on the toilet, I wouldn't even have to do this. We have to do this. Why, why don't you just try to sit on the toilet, buddy? And he responds to her and says, because I'm a baby. Like, oh, all right. Jessica's like, oh, you're a baby. Well, I thought you were a big boy. Like, I, here, I guess I was mistaken because I thought you were a big boy, and we've been trying to give you big boy privileges in a lot of other areas, but I guess we should treat you like a baby? To which Griffin, you could see his little mind working. He's like... No, I'm a big boy. <laughs> and you're like, uh-huh. Yeah, okay, we, we see where this is going. You, you have a new identity, because he is. He's a big boy. He's, he's growing in so many ways. He's not just getting bigger. I mean, man, his, his understanding and his reasoning and different things, he is. He's, he's a big boy in a lot of ways. But he has this aspect of his baby nature that he is still clinging to. <laughs> he's still holding on to. He doesn't want to walk away from that. In church, I think that can be us sometimes. We have a new identity when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in the work, the accomplished work of Jesus that we can never do. It's a gift from him. We put our faith and trust in that. We're a new person. The old is gone, the new is here. Unfortunately, even though we are made alive with Christ, some of us hold on to dead mindsets. And so we're alive with Christ, but we're thinking like we're still dead. We're alive with Christ, but we're still holding on to that myrrh. We're still clinging to, well, I don't know, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see if it works out, I don't know, that wasn't too good, and it probably won't happen for me, it probably won't work for me, and yeah, that's not gonna be good. We're holding on to our cynicism, we're holding on to our pessimism, and God is saying, I have made you alive. You're not that person anymore. Leave that in the tomb. If you're alive in Christ, don't cling to a mindset like you're a dead person. It hurts you. It hurts your development as a follower of Jesus in so many ways. You're not stepping into the future God has in mind for you and he designed for you as long as you're holding on to that dead mindset. Uh, Another movie, I've been in the movies a lot recently. I just saw that movie Air uh, with a couple of my friends, the Michael Jordan movie where Nike works to sign Michael Jordan. It's super interesting, really, really interesting. Don't don't worry, I'm not spoiling any of this because it's kind of history, right? Um, But Michael Jordan, basically the movie centers on Nike back in 1984 is like a third-rate shoe company. They're, they lag in sales compared to Converse and Adidas by a lot, which is funny to even think of today. But they do. They, they're, they're coming in third place. 
And so Michael Jordan, he's a big prospect coming out, and he's in the draft. He got selected number three, and all the shoe companies are starting to sign these draftees to shoe contracts. And uh, uh, at the moment, everyone knows Michael Jordan is going to be signing with Adidas. That's going to be the company he goes with. If he doesn't go with them, he'll probably go with Converse. But Nike, Michael Jordan didn't even take an appointment with Nike. He wouldn't book a meeting, wouldn't even be in a meeting with them because they were such a laughing stock in the shoe world. And so they're trying to figure out, they're like, look, if we don't make a big splash, our shoe department in, in the basketball arena is going to be dead by the end of this year. Like, we're going to have to shut it down. And so Sonny Vaccaro, this guy at Nike, he starts coming up with this plan. He's like, man, how can we, how can we pitch to Michael? And he, you know, talks to his, Michael's mom, and he's able to get a meeting with them. And so now they're trying to figure out, how do we, how do we talk to him about it? How do we try to convince him to sign with us? <laughs> and what happens is the uh, Nike board of directors, they want, they want the pitch meeting to sound just like Converse and Adidas's pitch meeting. They want it to be the same way. And Sonny at Nike and his little team that he's got together realize, look, if we go into there with the same mindset as those bigger companies that have more to offer and better things to offer, we're dead. <laughs> like, this is not gonna happen. It's not gonna work. We've got to renew our thinking. We've got to change the way we're approaching this completely and come in with a completely different uh, approach and thought process, everything. And so they do. So they come to this meeting with Michael Jordan and they completely have just different ways of doing things than all the other shoe companies. For example, Converse and Adidas, they come to meet with Michael and they're like, Michael, here are, here's our collection of shoes. Man, you would look so good in these shoes. You would look wonderful in these shoes. Nike comes into the meeting, first time that this has ever happened, Nike comes in the meeting and says, hey, Michael, um, you're not gonna be wearing our shoes. We are custom designing a shoe line just for you. We're gonna be calling this the, the shoe line the Air Jordan. They're designed, you are the signature player for this shoe. Completely revolutionized it. Just changed the way that everything had ever been done before. Not only that, the NBA has a rule where your shoes, 51% uh, of the shoe color has to be white. <laughs> they wanted to keep kind of a uniform look, and so you can add color as long as the majority of the shoe is white. Well, what Nike does is they find out, okay, well, what would happen if more of the shoe is colored than 51%? So they look into it and find out what the fine would be, and they're like, okay, we're going to tell Michael we're going to pay his fines. And they go to their shoe department and they tell them, we just want you to design the best looking shoe you possibly can. Don't worry about color. Don't worry about how much white, how much red, how much anything. Just make it look good. And if you've seen the Nike Jordan Air 1, that thing looks good. <laughs> That's a sharp shoe. It's a sharp shoe. And so they designed the shoe. They told them, this is what you're going to look like. Man, you are going to stand out. No one in the league has anything like this. We're going to pay the fines for you. We're budgeting that. We're going to be able to do that for you. They, they offered him profit sharing, a certain percentage of every shoe sold. All of these things completely revolutionary. And guess what? When news broke that Michael Jordan was signing with Nike, it shook the ground in the shoe world. They couldn't believe it. No one could believe that he had decided to sign with them. And now here we are in 2023, and Nike is the king of the court. <laughs> like they are the king of the shoe game. And it all happened because this small group of people from Nike realized, you know what, our old way of thinking, the old way of doing things, if we just stay with that, we're gonna be dead. We've gotta change the way we think. We've gotta change the way we look at this. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, my goodness, do we have to change the way we look at the world? Do we have to change the way we look at ourselves? The old way of thinking, our old patterns of doing things, our old mindsets have got to be laid in the tomb of Jesus. And yes, 
That includes the pessimism. That includes the negativity. That includes the, 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 the cynical nature that we have. They need to stay in the tomb. There is no room for them this side of the resurrection. We've got to change our mindsets. We've got to start seeing opportunities instead of obstacles. We've got to change the way we think. And this is what I'll say as we get ready to close out today. I want you to know this. I am abundantly aware that disappointments and letdowns and unmet expectations are real things. Because you can come in here today and you can be listening to everything I said. If you're watching online, you can be hearing all this and going like, yeah, that sounds great. You must live a pretty charmed life. <laughs> because you're, yeah, you're all optimism. You're all, hey, confident about the future. Easy for you to say. I don't know what you've experienced, but I've seen some stuff. And I want you to know, I get that. I get that unmet expectations and letdowns and disappointments are real. I very well could not have seen even remotely what you've seen, but I've experienced some in my life. My, my dad passed away uh, when I was at an age that I'm like, man, I feel like I should have my dad for at least double this. Like, this is, this is crazy. And so that was, that was a letdown. That was a disappointment in my life. Uh, me and my wife moved to Cleveland to start a church up there, and it didn't go the way that we were thinking and praying that it would. It was hard, and it was difficult. And man, to try to keep the church afloat, we were using our own finances, which caused us to have personal finance trouble with our, our cars being repossessed and utilities getting shut off. Like, it was a hard, hard time. Like, it was difficult. And so I, I don't... I, I can't speak into your situations, but I know in this room, we have people who have experienced the letdown of, of, of a divorce going through, the disappointment and the just utter chaos of, of going through a miscarriage. Like you've, you've had job losses and the job has never come back and you're still trying to figure things out. So I am abundantly aware. I am not trying to diminish the, the hard and the real issues that people are facing today. Like that is real. All that I am offering, all that I'm trying to say is that yes, those disappointments, those letdowns, those unmet expectations, those are real. But what if the resurrection is real too? What if what we are reading from Luke chapter 24 today, what if this isn't just a story that we tell ourselves and we kind of feel like, but it's not real, but I'm just saying this because it helps me feel good. And it helps me feel good about one day, maybe whenever I die, that I actually will go somewhere. What if what we're reading today isn't that? This is actually true. What if this is actual history that Jesus really did step out of the grave on that Sunday morning? Because if that is true, my God, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Nothing is the same anymore. So even your disappointments, even your letdowns, even those hard things that you've been through that you feel like give you every right to have a negative outlook for the future, that give you every right to be pessimistic and cynical, even those things don't get to be the end of the story unless you let it be. Even those things don't get to end in a period unless you're willing to let them end in a period. At the end of everything, there's a comma. Just like we talked about earlier, Jesus was dead but on Sunday morning, there is a continuation to the story that God wants to tell in your life. Are you willing to believe it though? Are you willing to put your faith and trust in that and actually start thinking that that is not just positive affirmation, but that's the truth? In living like that's the truth. Church, that, that's my challenge for all of us today. What if we would start to live like when Jesus got out of the tomb, we got out too? What if we would start to live like, you know what, whenever he got out in power, I'm getting out in power. I'm not living in that sad way of living anymore. I'm just not doing it. I'm not gonna be the negative person. I'm not gonna be the pessimistic person. I'm gonna be the person that brings light into every situation I find myself. 
How, think about how Akron would change if just the believers in this room, just the people watching online would do that. If all of our Facebook feeds were the most uplifting, most positive, most, hey, I'm pointing you to Jesus and I'm pointing you to the joy that he can bring, how would things change if that was us? How would things change if everyone at work knew, man, that dude is unflappable. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what happens, he is just steady. He is just steady, he has a joy that I don't even know where it comes from. We would change Northeast Ohio if just the people in this room watching online would embrace that fact. If we would embrace and walk in the truth that when Jesus got out of the tomb, we got out too. We have got to make that change. We gotta start walking confidence. We, we have a value here at Cornerstone, a core value called empty tomb confidence. And what it means is that we believe that every obstacle is an opportunity for God to show up and to show off. And so we will confidently and boldly step into the future knowing that he has been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful again. I wanna pray with you real quick, all right? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of the resurrection. Not the story, not the tale that we tell ourselves, not the myth, the fact that over 2,000 years ago, you stepped out of that grave in power and in glory and in new life, and you offer that same new life to us. God, you don't just take away our sin and our shame and our guilt. You, you can take away even more than that. You can take away our cynicism and our pessimism and our negativity for life. God, I know this is something we all struggle with. This is, I'm, I'm one of the most optimistic people I know and I can struggle with it. I can struggle with for, uh, uh, worry and fear and anxiety over the future, just waiting for the other shoe to drop, just waiting for things to not work out. But God, you have called us to such a bigger life than that to such a bigger life than worry and fear and doubt and cynicism and pessimism. God, help us to embrace the optimism, to embrace the confidence, to embrace the hope that comes from the fact that you've been faithful in the past. And if you've seen us through then, you're gonna see us through now. And if you've seen us through then, you're gonna see us through there. That that truth, that fact, that we can build our life on that. We can build our joy on that. We can build our hope on that, our positivity on that, our optimism on that truth. Help us to see that truth and to live that truth. Resurrection people in every situation we find ourselves pointing everyone around us to the faithful God that we serve. We love you, Father, and we lift all this up in your name. Amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.